You are listening to a pleasure podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Hi, friends. Welcome to American Sex, a podcast dedicated to normalizing conversations about pleasure and alternative sexual expression by challenging the puritanical backward ass ideals right here in the good old U.S. of A. This is episode 119 of American Sex Podcast, and I'm not Sonny Megatron. I am also, I'm not Ken Melvoinberg. And we are sexuality educators. I almost said we're not, but we are. We are pleasure advocates, kinky pervs. We are ambassadors of fuck. Yes, and we're married. And today, do you know what we did? We what did, did we a, did? We did a first thing. What did we do? We caucused. Oh, we did caucus. We was, did caucus. It was it was a shit show. People waited for hours. There Except were people about to punch each other out. People calling each other bitches and shit. It was great entertainment. Anyway, and I got to go through the whole thing in five minutes. Yeah, because he hadn't declared a party, so he got to go and declare his party and vote and be out in five minutes. Three hours later, he's gone grocery shopping, bought a rotisserie chicken, drove halfway around the world. I'm still not out and of this. Is the first place. time in my life I've been a uh, Democrat. Which I'm, I'm just. Like, I've never been a registered. Democrat. That makes me kind of gasp a little. Well, I've been undeclared <gasps> my I, entire life. Who did I marry? How can you vote straight Democrat on your ticket if you're not a Democrat? I, <gasps> I can't. Gasp. Gasp! All right. Anyway, who are we talking to this week, Ken? This week, we're having a conversation about using BDSM as a therapeutic tool with Andrea Glick. She is a psychotherapist, a somatic healer, and a sex educator. Andrea specializes in treating trauma and PTSD for women, survivors, and queer and trans folk, utilizing body-based and feminist therapy practices to help clients come home to themselves. Okay. I seriously geeked out so much during this conversation. Andrea explains the difference between glimmers and triggers. She explains also the stress response cycle and the impact that trauma has on our nervous system and how depression can be a survival response. Then we dive into how BDSM can be used to combat some of these things and how she integrates BDSM into her therapy sessions. We not only talk about the many, many ways BDSM can be therapeutic to submissives, but also the ways that it can help heal dominance. We cover consensual non-consent, how shame and trauma show up in our sexual identity, little space, aftercare as an emotional corrective experience, and so much more. So even if you do not consider yourself a practitioner of BDSM, so much of this episode may very well still apply to you. So please listen to it. And also, if you've been struggling to get your therapist to understand the importance of kink in your life, please recommend that they listen to this episode too. Now, lastly, I do want to reiterate that in this conversation, we do talk about consensual non-consent, aka rape fantasies. Although we don't get into specifics or graphic detail, we do bring up the subject on a more conceptual level. So I want to let you know that so you can take care of you as you prepare to listen to this conversation. Also, I want to ask you, have you been watching our sex ed live stream series on Wednesday nights? I have. <gasps> well, you're part of it. So I hope so. <laughs> Ken through the whole thing with his eyes closed. No, really, if you're not, you should I be. I love you so much right now. And you don't even know why. Oh, why? Just keep going. Are you high? No, because my <laughs> eyes are closed. Go, go, go. Oh, you're so mean. Okay. So you should be watching this. It is free. So this upcoming Wednesday on February 19th, we're diving into electric wand play. If you think electrosex toys are only for pain and hardcore BDSM scenes, think again. While they can absolutely be used to bring your play partner mercifully to their knees, a simple setting adjustment can bring sensual erotic play to your bedroom too. Now, Ken and I are electric play enthusiasts and experts. Ken even worked on the development of the neon wand. So whether you're new to electric play or you're a seasoned pro, this Wednesday you're going to learn how to tailor e-stim tools to suit your specific needs. Basics, advanced techniques, plus alternative uses of wands and accessories. And as always, if you stick around to the end of the broadcast, you may have the opportunity to win a luxury sex toy. And this week, our prize sponsor is Tanga. We have got a Flip Zero EV 
penis stimulator valued at $200. I'm telling you, this is one of the best toys out there for penises, so please do not miss it. Watch it live or on replay on Get Vocal at bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y, Sunny Get Vocal. That's spelled S-U-N-N-Y, G-E-T, V-O-K-L. So we had a really interesting thing happen with the last Get Vocal broadcast. Yeah. Uh, not everybody stuck around until the very end, and we had problems actually finding people to give prizes away so to. So I'm going to reiterate. I'm going to reiterate. You need to be present to win. So if you, like, go on the Get Vocal and just are there long enough to get your name in a hat and think you can scoot out without watching the broadcast, I got news for you. So stick around to the end, because what do we go through, six or seven names? But we had a very nice thing happen at the very yes. end, because we had somebody who had won some prizes in the past. She had won again, and then she turned around and gave her prize to somebody who hadn't won, which was just amazing. Yeah. And it and, made that person stay. It was awesome. And as we we're watching the conversation, it turned out, and I don't know if the person, you know, Desiree, who gave her prize away knew this person and knew, like, but this person had had a horrible, traumatic day slash week. Like, and let me know when you're going to send them, because I've got extra stuff yes, for that package. Yes, yes, we've got extra stuff for that package. But it was just, I wanted to cry. It was so heartwarming. I was like, it was, really? It was actually and everyone really in the chat was all warm and fuzzy. It was. We all had a moment, and guess what? Y'all missed it. So be there Wednesday night, because who knows what kind of magic is going to happen. Again, it's at bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash Sunny Get Vocal. All right, American fuckers. Here's BDSM as a therapeutic tool with Andrea Glick. So American fuckers, I am very excited because having this podcast gives me an excuse as I've been called a, was an extroverted introvert or introverted extrovert or whatever. (laughs) Um, People think I'm an extrovert, but I'm like super shy and I don't like to approach people I don't know. But having a podcast gives me the excuse (laughs) to be like, I read about this cool person on the internet that I don't really know very well, but I want to talk to them about everything. And this is one of those situations. So a listener emailed me and it's like, you have to talk to Andrea about BDSM and healing. And then I geeked out. I fell into an internet hole and I was like, I, I want to <laughs> talk to you. So hello. Thank you so much for Hi, being Andrea. here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I love that so much. I'm so glad that you found me. Yes, yes. And, you know, it's interesting because I really geek out on using BDSM as a healing tool. And I often Mm -hmm. tell people and a lot of people that, you know, come to us for, you know, whether it's private coaching or just, you know, advice Mm -hmm. or whatever. You know, I tell them, yes, BDSM can be very therapeutic and you can use it as a part of your therapeutic process. But Mm -hmm. I always tell them like, but it's not just standalone therapy. Go out and find yourself someone. Like if you're processing yes. some heavy yes. stuff, go find someone like you. So tell me about your practice. Let's start there. How do you um, integrate BDSM in your sessions? And why do you call your sessions somatic, but you don't really do like physical things during your sessions? Yeah, absolutely. So I think about the work that I do with my clients who use kink and BDSM as part of their identity or as a healing tool is very similar to folks who work with clients who utilize psychedelics for healing, where we can't do that in the room together, but we can have sessions to integrate what they understand, um, to, to integrate the things that they've learned about themselves or to process what has happened within scenes or within dynamics that they're in, in the session. So that's how I sort of think about it as like, as integration. And what I can offer people is to use the somatic theories and psychotherapy practices to understand what is so impactful about these experiences. And so you can walk away from a scene and be like, I feel changed, but I don't exactly know what happened internally. Like, I don't know what happened with my nervous system or my attachment system or or why that was so impactful. And then that's where our work can begin. And so that's how how I think about that. And then as for my practice being more somatically based, I do experiential um, exercises with clients in sessions. So that can be breath work, that can be... um, different kinds of somatic resourcing, whether clients are pushing against a wall, whether we're laying on the floor and rolling around and being playful, whether they're building a safe 
container for their bodies within like mountains of pillows and blankets. Like it, it gets very creative. So there is definitely a, an experiential aspect to some sessions, but I would say that most of all, the somatic component is me asking questions about the body. So how is your body responding to this conversation we're having? What's happening with your nervous system as you talk about that experience and helping clients understand what their nervous system is, how to tune into the language of the body, because we can't, we don't know how to listen if we don't speak the language. So someone can just be like, oh, how do you feel in your body right now? And the answer can be like, fine, I don't know, I feel fine. But if you develop a language around, oh, I'm experiencing this warming sensation in my stomach, which goes along with the emotion this and the thought this, we really like build this dialogue to incorporate our physical experience into the narrative therapy that that tends to happen anyways, so that it's not just uh, neck up. Mm. That is awesome. Um, so yeah. when, when reading about your work, one of the most amazing concepts that I came across was the idea of glimmers. Can you talk a little bit about triggers yeah, and totally. glimmers and what they mean to the central nervous system? Totally. Yeah. So I think most people are pretty familiar with what a trigger is, which I'll just recap in case not. It's something that activates us in a way that can bring up a trauma response, a survival response, a negative memory a negative emotion. So it can be something like smelling your ex's cologne on the subway and feeling sick to your stomach or feeling really sad. So that would be like a trigger for that. Um, and so we, we do talk pretty heavily about what triggers are and what to do if you're triggered and all of this. And that's super, super important. But however, what we're missing, which the polyvagal theory, and there's an incredible text that's really at the core of my practice, which is called the polyvagal theory in therapy by Deb Dana. And she writes a lot about the the other side to triggers, which are glimmers. And these are things that trigger us into a connected and safe and social place. So maybe it's, again, to use the smell one, because I think that we're very impacted by smell. Like a glimmer of mine is lavender. So when I smell lavender, I'm glimmered into a place of feeling grounded and safe and connected. And so part of the work that I do with clients isn't just identifying triggers and how to manage when they come up or avoid certain triggers, but it is also to understand what their glimmers are and to put themselves in situations in which they get to experience a glimmer. Mm. That's that's just amazing for all this time. Like I, you know, I keep focusing on the negative and the triggers without yeah. thinking that there was a polar opposite. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So I want to lay some of the geeky scientific groundwork for further conversations about integrating BDSM in all of this. So I, mm -hmm. Can you explain for me, um, one, I want to talk about the nervous system response and, you know, how that gets stuck in trauma and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And then another thing I want to talk about, and I completely geeked out about this, I have first heard, I think, Emily Nagoski talk about how yeah. BDSM may complete the stress response cycle. And when I heard that, like, my brain just, I was like, I oh, know. my God, yes. So <laughs> let's talk about those two things, like explain the, the nervous yeah. system for us, and then explain about that stress response system. Yeah, absolutely. And I love Emily Nagoski's book, Come As You Are. And then oh. the most recent book that she wrote with her sister, yes. Burnout, is incredible. I recommend those books to most of my clients. They're amazing. Um, yeah, so with the right, so with the nervous system, we have different responses and they correlate with different branches of the nervous system. So to use the polyvagal theory to explain the nervous system, which I find to be the most um the most accessible way of thinking about it and also the most positive. So at the top of your ladder, so if you picture a ladder, there's the safe and social, grounded, connected place, which corresponds to the ventral vagal nerve, which is a branch of the parasympathetic nervous system. So for a long time, we've thought about the nervous system as being the fight or flight response, which is the sympathetic branch, and then the submit collapse response, which is the parasympathetic branch. But within the parasympathetic, you actually have two more branches. And one of the branches is that calming energy that we get when we are connected to someone. And then the other branch, which is the dorsal vagal response, is the more survival response, collapse, submit, pretend that you're dead. And so we can go to these two different places within the parasympathetic. And so essentially polyvagal looks at it more specifically at the different ways, again, like how we can foster resilience within our nervous system if we don't look at it as being such a binary. So at the top you have safe and connected. And then right below, you have 
a sympathetic response, which is again, that more like activated energy, which can be being really excited about something, but it can also be being really anxious or in a fight or flight state. And then below that, we have the dorsal vagal response, which is that collapsed, freeze, submit place. But that can also be kind of other side to that is how you feel after really intense orgasm or really or subspace or how you feel after eating like a really, really delicious meal where you're just like totally zonked out in the most delicious way. And so the thinking about the nervous system as being these kind of three, three steps of the ladder helps us understand where we're at, what that looks like for us and what we need to either get out of that collapsed response in this in because you have to activate yourself out of that really, really collapsed place. When we're at the bottom of the ladder, that's the survival response that our body goes to when it is, it's essentially given up, which is why depression is so heavy and difficult to get out of because it is a, it's a survival response of play dead. And this is the last resort versus sympathetic energy, which is that more like anxious energy is, um, comes before that. And so it's a little bit easier to get out of that. I'm not saying having anxiety is easy at all, but there's more energy to work with. And so you can expend that energy. And that, that also relates to the stress response cycle. So in your stress response cycle, we, Every day, especially living in the modern world, have in the overdeveloped world, we have all of these experiences in which our very, very primal stress response cycle that would have gotten triggered during activities that we were designed to engage in, for example, hunting for our own food. So, you know, for example, the one I always give is like, I'm running for the subway, my stress response cycle is activated because there's this thing that I need to get in order to do my job, which is the train. And I get onto the train, so I should get to have this completion of my stress response cycle. But instead of getting to to do anything with the energy that I just activated, I'm just sitting on the train. So we have all of these moments throughout the day where we get activated and there's no completion. We just get stuck there, which is why a lot of us can feel really anxious all the time because there's all of these stress hormones, cortisol, adrenaline that are getting activated all day and we don't have any opportunity to release them. And this is why I, I do really appreciate the way that BDSM and kink can offer us opportunities to complete that stress response cycle. There are obviously other ways as well. It is certainly not the only way, but it is a really wonderful container for that. So to bring the, the nervous system back in, your that stress that you feel, that's that sympathetic energy. And so we only drop down into that dorsal collapse place if it has been evaluated that we cannot fight and we cannot flee. And so we have to move through that more collapsed place into the more activated place in order to get to the connected place. And so if we think about it like that, it becomes a little bit less daunting to be like, oh my God, like how do I get myself out of this depression? Or how do I deal with my anxiety? It's like, okay, I have to do these steps to get out of this state so that I can be back in my safe and social and connected zone. And then it, it I find that the way that this works is it helps depathologize people's experiences and they don't get so stuck in, I have depression, I'm a depressed person. And it's more like, can we find the root of this survival response that you're experiencing and then develop coping and stabilization to get you out of that state? I love that. That is just cool. amazing. So I have a question for you. This one's a little bit difficult because it may be outside of your area of expertise. Mm -hmm. I recently started microdosing mushrooms. And I noticed uh -huh. that my stress response cycle is almost gone. Like it's, um, wow, it's, yeah. it's something that was vastly affected and it's not like all uh -huh. my emotions are gone, but definitely the negative ones don't feel as oppressive if that makes sense. Do you know, mm -hmm. do you know anything about that or can you comment on that particular subject? Yeah, I, um, I really believe in people utilizing what they need to utilize in the world to do with to be happy and connected and grounded. There's a really wonderful podcast specifically about using psychedelics to heal from trauma. It's, I'll have to look up the name. It's really, really incredible. Um, and I'm so like, we can add it to the show notes. Later. Yeah. Yeah. Give okay, it to me great. and we'll put it in the show notes on American sex podcast.com for listeners okay, and life will be good. Awesome. Oh, I, okay. So the podcast is of course, remembered it. It's called inside eyes oh. and it talks a lot about the way that psychedelics can help us heal from trauma and, and also like the trauma of living in the world that we live in. Like, I do believe that living in the way that capitalism and colonialism has impacted the earth is a trauma that we're all dealing with. And so you don't have to necessarily have experienced this big, huge trauma to need to utilize something like that. I think that 
psychedelics are, are certainly one way. Again, BDSM is another way. Again, therapy is another way. I also would recommend if you're doing either of those things to see a therapist, to integrate those experiences. Um, and I also do really love breath work as well for this, because in my experience, I do get to have a very psychedelic experience without having to utilize any plants. And it's totally fine to do that as well. But for folks who are maybe wanting to try something that is a little bit more low risk, I do feel like breath work is a very similar experience. Mm, that's awesome. And yeah. I am doing all three, by the way. I just never realized that, uh, that there's an intersection between therapy, BDSM, and microdosing. And that's yeah, the sure. whole world has yeah, just made it, sense. It, it, yeah, it totally is. <laughs> You're having some kind yeah, of revelation here. Well, thank you. Um, okay, yeah. so I want to start tying this to BDSM. Now, a lot of people practice BDSM just because they like it. It's fun. It feels good. You know, they, mm -hmm. they don't really, they haven't really analyzed like why it feels good. Or maybe there's not a deep reason for everybody liking mm -hmm. BDSM where there's other people that, you know, know that they're, acting out, maybe they're acting out certain patterns, or they're acting out certain negative scenarios and changing them. I think a lot of us and a lot of our listeners are very BDSM savvy. So a lot of us have heard like the kind of the stock examples of ways that BDSM can potentially be healing. So I want to start first with people who are bottoms or submissives, but I also want to talk how it can be healing for tops because it seems like we always focus mm -hmm. focus on submissives. Yes. So <laughs> tell me, and tell I have, me about it, and I have, no, I know, but I have questions. <laughs> I have questions because I started out as a submissive. A lot of my mm -hmm. fantasies are submissive, even though I don't yeah. like to actually be submissive in real life. I like to fantasize about being submissive, mm -hmm. um, and I've embraced being dominant in real life. But I still have questions mm. of why. I think because we don't talk about what tops get out of it. So now that we're there, let's start there. Let's yeah. just let's just do it backwards. So what <laughs> what does a top get out of like I'm gonna tell you what to do and I'm gonna control you or or whatever yeah. they're doing? How is that therapeutic? Or are they just facilitators for the bottoms? Yeah, no, God, I, I really appreciate us starting there. I definitely feel like we do really emphasize the experience of the submissive because they are in the more receiving end of the dynamic. However, I, I really, really appreciate this question because for tops, I do think that there's the facilitation aspect, which in itself is also healing, getting to facilitate a healing experience for someone else. As a therapist, I can attest to how healing that is for me. When I see you know, people in my life heal because of me, whether it's in my relationships or it's in my practice, that's an incredibly healing experience. But for a lot of people who've experienced trauma, whether it's sexual trauma or whatever, getting to be in control is extremely healing. So just as for bottoms, it's extremely healing to give somebody else that control when they have never felt safe enough to do so. Being given that control is, is empowering. It's really, really helpful for correcting a past experience in which you didn't have control or you had control and something went wrong or someone or like rebuilding trust in your life, having somebody trust you with their body, especially if there's like limited communication involved because of, you know, a ball gag, for example, you know, like you're really, you're getting to experience a deep level of trust that you may have never been able to experience before. And I have heard from, from clients of mine who, you know, are survivors who are more dominant that it really does rewrite their own narratives that they are, um, that they've had when they've, experienced trauma and been out of control and not in a consensual way. Mm, interesting. Yeah. I'm, I, you know, it's like, I'm thinking for myself, when I think of my submissive fantasies, I very much tie those to very personal traumas. And when sure, I think totally. of being a dominant for me as a woman in this society, exactly. I think of like taking back more of my societal power and like patriarchy and, you know, all of that stuff comes into play. Although exactly, I think exactly. there is some personal stuff too. However, I've heard a lot of people who are into kink who consider themselves feminists. And I kind of get like, mm, when I hear this, they're like, no white cis man should ever be a dominant top right. you know, because they have all the power and why uh -huh. it's sick if they then want the power in the right. bedroom and want to right. oppress somebody who's already oppressed. What do you think of that? I know I have yeah, my opinions, absolutely. but I want to know yours because we're talking to you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. I, I, 
I really think that this is super important. If the white cis man in the relationship has experienced trauma, which that also happens in this world, um, that I, that everything we just talked about, I think applies. And then if not, I think that if it is, if it's for the bottoms experience, whether they are a cis woman, a cis gay man, someone who is non-binary, then coming at it with, I have so, you know, this is the like white cis man talking. I have so much privilege and power in this world. I have this opportunity to use it to create an experience for my partner that they want. And so that in itself, I believe is extremely powerful and healing. I think that if someone out there listening is a white cis man who has a lot of power and domination fantasies where they are the dominant or the top, that it's not necessarily like you can't explore that, but I would deeply encourage you to understand why you have that desire. And I think that a lot, all people in the world experience disempowerment. So maybe you were bullied as a kid, or maybe your older sibling was mean to you, or maybe you didn't, you got picked last for the football team or whatever, like we all experience feeling disempowered. So I do really believe that we all have those experiences, but I do think that there are some people with certain privileges who do need to explore what that kink comes from for them and to find a partner who is, who would, to enjoy that themselves versus someone who's going to be like, whatever you want. Um, And then there's more of this dynamic of you holding the power and your partner who's maybe a woman, you know, doing doing what you want all the time. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's helpful. That's super helpful. Okay, cool. so... And I was just thinking, by the way, as yeah. a cis white male who's, who is a top, being a bottom gives me mm-hmm. way more power. Yeah. <laughs> Ser- sincerely, yeah, I think sure. it does. There's yeah. a lot of ways that that gives me a lot more power as I'm controlling the scene. Oh, um, interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, just from an, an, a dynamic perspective, I think about what I put into a scene yeah. as a top and it's a lot more, I'm, a, I'm kind of a service top though. So I don't know if that's a, a little bit different. Right. Right. I guess that is different. No, I really appreciate that. That's really true because if you're, that's again, what I mean when I'm like, if you're a dominant, who's a white cis man and your, um, your partner who experiences oppression in the world that you don't want a certain experience, you're giving them that gift of providing that for them. And so that is really different. And I think specifically being a service top, you are giving in a society in which you are often the one being given to. Yeah. So that does also rewrite that narrative as well. Yeah. It is very giving and nurturing. And, yeah. you know, and I know personally, like knowing you and the way you well, talk, I'm very maternal. you have a, yeah, you have a very yeah. nurturing, like, I'm going to help you grow and I'm going to help you, you know, whatever it is That's you want to work on kind of thing. So that's really interesting when it when it comes to tops, and I'm gonna I'm gonna keep focusing on um, cis men in particular. You know, mm-hmm. I guess racially doesn't matter, but when it comes to cis men who are submissive, and this is my own kind of theory. I want to hear what you think of it. Um, you know, cis men who are submissive in a way that is. Um, taking their masculinity to a stereotyped extreme. So what I mean is like sissification, humili- uh-huh, like uh-huh. small penis humiliation, um, yeah, humiliation yeah. in the fact of either whether it's financial or like you're not good yeah. enough as a man or you're only yeah. good for providing. So those types of fetishes, where do they come from? Are they more societal, like dealing with the the negative back end of patriarchy as a man? Mm-hmm. Are they, you know, what's right. what's your your take on that group of fetishes? Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, it really makes me think about how patriarchy does hurt us all, and that not that if you have that fantasy, there's something wrong with it, but that the impact of patriarchy on our sexuality is so intense, and so it makes a lot of sense that in a world in which as a cis man, you are made to feel like you have to reach this unattainable standard of being perfect, being masculine, having a huge penis, being super rich, you know, like all of these things, like you have to be this, this is the stereotype of what a a man is, and you have to be it, that of course, within your fantasies, you get the space to be so imperfect and not be so dominant or not be so big and powerful. I think that makes, it doesn't leave room for men to be anything other than that in our society. And so it makes sense that they want to have to connect with their feminine side or to connect with their submissive side in sex and in kink. That makes a ton of sense to me. Similarly to 
you know, I think you can make the argument for literally any um, gender plus like being a top or bottom where it's like, of course, within the world that we live in, you would want to have this experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So tops, have we talked about everything about top feeling like I'm missing something? Ken, do you have any other top questions? Oh, I, sorry, really quickly. I'm thinking about, um, like feminine people and, and women who get the experience of being a top and how healing that is too. And how, again, thinking about the impact of patriarchy. So living in this world and not getting that experience of getting to feel dominant or getting to feel in control or getting to feel powerful and how being a dominant woman, whether you're a femdom or a butch top or what have you, you get to have that experience of having some power and control in a society in which you have very little. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is, you know, as I embrace my dominance, I think I was scared of my dominance because I had never been allowed to be like that in real life. So when I finally got the opportunity to call the shots and make the decisions, it's like, Oh my God, I, I have to make a decision. I don't, I've never done right. that before. Oh. And it was very scary. And it took a long, I'm still even like apprehensive with some things, but there's yeah, something that I right. noticed. There's something as it started to feel good, as it started to feel like, yeah, I have the power. I have the control. You know, I'm trying on these new roles. I'm trying on being aggressive without it being a negative and being called a bitch about it. You know, exactly. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I also found, though, on the flip side, especially when I'm topping men, I suddenly Mm -hmm. started realizing, oh, my God, it looks like I'm in control. But it's kind of like that service top situation where it's like, really, I'm providing all of this emotional labor to you as the (laughs) bot. And I'm like, God damn it, I'm back where I started. (laughs) Like, what the fuck? Oh I'm my sorry, God, I'm a bad so example, real. sweetheart. It's okay. <laughs> I just need to talk more non-cis men. I give a lot of like, emotion. That's, you know. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> is there ever yeah. truly a situation where uh, a cis woman can top a cis yeah. man and it's truly um, benefiting the right. female top <laughs> in an empowering <laughs> way? Is that even possible? Yeah, I love this. I love this so much. Well, first off, um, get paid <laughs> to do yeah, it. Um, that, that's that's the only thing, seriously, when I have to, except for you, Ken, <laughs> I like topping you because it doesn't happen very often. And I just, I get some just emotional kick out of it. But any other situation. I, I, have, a, I have a new bunny has, butt plug in some bunny ears. Yeah, wear that shit. But any other situation <laughs> has to involve money. To me, money's like the neutralizer. Like, yeah. okay, you can buy my emotional labor. Cool. Like, I actually get yeah, off on that. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, so anyway, keep exactly, going. For sure. Yeah. So I feel like being fairly compensated for your emotional labor through money or like, for example, if there are like, you know, assist men listening to this out there who are like, I really want this like powerful femdom, like you can find one. Like there are so many who are so skilled and so incredible and who deserve to be financially compensated for their labor. But if you're in a relationship where that doesn't involve a financial exchange and you are a woman who is a dominant I think making sure that the scenes that you have also curate to your desires as a dominant. So for example, like if your submissive partner who's a cis man is really into, um, yeah, into like small penis humiliation, and that's just like not really your thing. Like you're really more interested in something else, making sure that there's room for you to have the components of the scene that will get you off or get you to feel like your most dominant, powerful self. Mm, yeah, yeah. I think that's that's important because when I when I realized that I was like, motherfucker. <laughs> totally. God. I know. Absolutely. It's like more labor. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So all right, let let's flip it to the to the submissives. And I I particularly I like I want to dive into the deep end. Sure, you know, flogging and sensation play and that could bring up stuff, but right. I really want to go there. Um, let's talk consensual non-consent because, (laughs) you know, yay, uh, it's one, it's edgy. It's what every fucking buddy's scared of, but also every fucking buddy wants to do, but they don't want to admit it because they think there's something (laughs) wrong with them that they have, whether it's rape fantasies or kidnap fantasies or whatever it is. So let's go there. Talk to me like about consensual non-consent and then let's dive into how it can be therapeutic and let's also bust some myths about what it's not because i think a lot of people have hang-ups about 
what they think yeah. it means about them if they fantasize. Absolutely. Us. Yes. So consensual non-consent, whether that's, yeah, like you said, like a rape fantasy or somebody replaying their trauma and that could be any kind of trauma or maybe it's replaying a certain component of the trauma. So it could be like the same flavor, but not the same like exact recreation of it. Um, it can be even like a ravishing fantasy. Like I, I can't not have you when I was on uh, Tina Horn's podcast, Why Are People Into That? We talked about the example of the notebook where Ryan Gosling is so persistent. He won't take no for an answer and how everybody was like so turned on by that. Um, you know, that is still consensual non-consent. Um, I think if you if you look at actually most romantic movies or like any like princess movies, there's like a lot of this sort of like I will I will have you no matter what and and how good that can feel if it's in a container to be desired to that level. We want to feel that way. Um, again, we want to feel that way consensually. That's the thing about consensual non-consent is that it it begins with consent and it's always about consent. So it's not about actually removing consent from a dynamic. It's about creating even more consent so that you can take. You can go into a fantasy in which there isn't any, but then there is always the container of this can end at any time. There's a safe word. I highly suggest choosing one that isn't no or stop because those are words that you might want to use. Um, and so making sure it's something that's incredibly like out of context. I really like red, for example. It's very simple. Um, it's not like too silly. If you're really triggered, you don't want to say a funny word. Um, and it's probably not going to come up. So, you know, having having an out. Um, and so... Again, like you said, this is actually the most common fantasy that people have, which makes a ton of sense. We are such intellectual creatures who want to understand our experience and specifically, I think, sexual assault, but also like trauma in general is something that we all are trying to grapple with and make sense of. And so it's we tend to fetishize things that by fetishizing something, we also neutralize something and make something a little bit less hard to deal with. And so I think if if we didn't have consensual non-consent fantasies in rape culture, I think a lot of people would absolutely lose their minds because it is just so awful and horrifying to think that this thing could happen to you at any moment. And so if you fetishize it and you eroticize it, then it does not make it like, quote, easier if it happens to you, but it's a way to make sense of this thing and sort of take back some of the control and some of the power and write your own narrative. And when we, when we fetishize something, we also make it our own. Right. What if you could accomplish all of the resolutions you made this year by doing just one thing? Mindfulness is the best thing you can do to help you focus on all areas of your life, whether that's taking care of your body, getting more sleep, or finally starting that project you keep putting off. With Calm, you can learn to be more mindful so you can achieve all of your goals. Calm is the number one app for sleep, relaxation, and meditation. Calm has sleep stories, which are like bedtime stories for adults. They can help you fall into a deep, natural sleep in minutes. And the stories are narrated by iconic voices like LeVar Burton. They also have soothing music from artists like Sam Smith, guided meditations, breathing exercises, and so much more to help you relax and de-stress. For listeners of American Sex Podcast, Calm is offering a special limited time promotion of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash sunny. That's 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library and New content is added every single week. Get started today at calm.com slash S-U-N-N-Y. That's calm.com slash sunny. You use lube, right? You probably already know that it makes sex feel so much better. But do you use good lube? You want to make sure you use a lube made from the highest quality body safe ingredients, and nothing beats UberLube. UberLube is a luxurious, high-grade silicone lubricant made from clean, body-friendly ingredients. It's just silicone with a little vitamin E. The vitamin E leaves a velvety finish that actually moisturizes your skin. UberLube also lets skin feel skin. So lube is supposed to enhance touch, right? Not overpower it. UberLube adds a thin layer that leads to just the right amount of slip while still allowing for skin-on-skin -skin sensations. 
And UberLube's measured pumps allow you to dispense the perfect amount of product every single time, even in the dark. You're in control of how long it lasts. UberLube offers long-lasting performance when you want it, then quickly dissipates without leaving a sticky residue. It feels like a nice moisturizer when you're finished. UberLube also works underwater, making it great for fun in pools, lakes, or tubs. Right now, UberLube is offering American Sex Podcast listeners a special offer, 10% off and free shipping when you use my code SUNNY at uberlube.com. That's 10% off and free shipping using the code SUNNY, S-U-N-N-Y, at uberlube.com. When, you know, one, we can be rewriting, I guess, our experiences with consensual non-consent. Yeah, right. Are there times, however, you know, because you really need to kind of know what you're doing to play this way. And not everybody does. And sometimes it works out great. Sometimes you're like, you know, hey, that was therapeutic. Don't know why, you know. (laughs) Yeah, totally. But and that's fun. Sometimes yeah. it doesn't. Um, so right. when can this go wrong? Like what things do we really have to watch out for when we're playing this way to lessen our chances? And, you know, for those listening along, this is, you know, risk aware consensual kink. You can't be like, I'm going to play with this heavy duty mental stuff and it's always going to turn out fine. Like it could blow up in your face. So just throwing that Absolutely. out there. Um, so what things can we do to hopefully uh, lessen the chances of it going off the rails in a bad way? Yeah, absolutely. For sure. And I, I, um, talk a lot about this in the workshop that I have on my website, which is the healing through BDSM training at the end. I have some questions that I suggest people use to talk to their partners about kink in general, but you could also specifically use it with consensual non-consent. So for example, even if you're doing pickup play at a party and you want to like go there with someone, which like, okay, if, if that feels like what if it is within your capacity, I have no reason to say like, don't do that is that you want to understand and know your partner's triggers. You want to know and understand what it looks like when they are triggered. So if it's like when they're nonverbal or like if they start crying or if there's no emotion whatsoever, like you need to know what that looks like. So essentially like knowing what it's going to look like if it goes wrong and then having an exit plan. So do we need to leave the play party? Do we need to take a walk out of the house? Like, do you need me to go away? Like, what is the thing that you need if something goes wrong? How do I know if I'm pushing you to the edge in a way that feels really awesome? And how do I know if I'm pushing you to the edge in a way that feels absolutely terrible? Okay, okay. So also, you you know, you mentioned when you break for the scene, do we need to leave the parties, which makes me think of aftercare. Um, A a lot of people either gloss over aftercare, or if they don't gloss over it, they're like, you always need to bring them a warm blanket and tell them they were good. And, you know, and, and yeah. <laughs> we know, like, you know, Ken and I as BDSM practitioners that aftercare can look very different. It can be like, ignore yeah. the fuck I've out n- of me and kick me in the butt. Yeah, like, the same. Yeah, exactly. So how important or how much of this process does aftercare play in being therapeutic? Like, is it a good chunk of the the healing Yeah, right. I would say it's definitely a pretty significant part of it. And whether that's like coming together and yeah, like cuddling and being told that you were good, which I think would be really, really healing for some people, or getting to advocate for your needs and telling your top or dominant to like get the fuck away from you. Um, I think that either of those does create a, again, this corrective emotional experience of getting to have the end of your scene or your trauma narrative end differently. So this time I'm cared for, or this time I get to be in control and say like, I need to be left alone. Um, But yeah, I do think that I do think that aftercare is a huge, huge component of why it is healing. Absolutely. But that the main sort of like highlight for whether it's before the scene, during the scene, after the scene, regardless, is that you are getting to have these experiences that don't match the way that your trauma went. So like if you're negotiating your scene that involves consensual non-consent, then you are getting to make a plan and there is predictability. And one of the, one of the biggest components of trauma is that there isn't predictability. Something happens too quickly and 
you have no control over it. And so with this, you're getting to have some control. And then during the scene, you're again, like choosing to have this happen to you. You're fetishizing it. You're eroticizing it. You're choosing it. And then afterwards you get cared for. So all, every single step along the way is a mismatch from how your trauma actually went. And so one, maybe one component isn't more important than the other, but it's just about getting to have that experience that doesn't match what your experience has been in the past. Okay. Okay. How, let's talk about like, um, little space, for instance, we've had a couple of episodes recently about littles and like, um, adult baby diaper lovers and that sort of thing. Uh And they talked a lot about being in that headspace called little space. So if you can talk about being in, in that sort of headspace, how is that therapeutic? Even if let's say you're playing alone, let's say you're on the floor with some, action figures coloring and you're not in in the middle of a scene you're just in that space how can that be therapeutic yeah absolutely I love talking about big little dynamics because it's essentially like reparenting within your relationship and I love talking about little space because it's so much inner child work that this was one of the main things when I was training as a therapist that I was like how has nobody talked about how kinky this shit is like it's all about like, listen to your inner child. What do they want? Do they want to watch a kid's movie? Do they want to like eat a kid's food? And I'm like, this is so kinky. <laughs> so I think that folks who are interested in exploring whether it's inner child work or it's age play, that within those spaces, our inner children, because we sometimes contain not just one, but multiple ones of different ages, we get to communicate with them. We get to embody them. They get the love and care they never received in childhood. Um, We get to accept that we like childhood doesn't just end when we become quote an adult and that we still have these, you know, younger, curious, excited, innocent parts of ourselves that we can still tap into that are really important. And, you know, a lot of our core wounding happens when we're little. And so when we get to rewrite again, the stories around that age with whether it's a partner, whether it's with ourselves through self-acceptance and self-nurturing, we do also heal those childhood wounds. Mm, I love it. I love it. So, okay, we're talking about a lot of a lot about uh, childhood and the past and traumas and triggers and, and all that stuff. So are most fantasies or fetishes, or even if you can assign maybe an arbitrary percentage, you know, are most of them rooted in I'm working out a thing through my past or sometimes it's like, mm-hmm. I just like feet. Don't know why there isn't a reason. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, totally. Right. Right. Um, one of my favorite writers, Maggie Nelson says, I don't want to talk about female sexuality until there's a control group and there never will be. And that makes me think a lot about how we'll never know why we like what we like. And so for some people, they may want to get to the root of something and be like, why is it that I'm so into age play? Like, what is this? Is this childhood? Like, is this about my dad? Is it about my mom? And that's fine if you want to do that exploration. But we also will never actually know because we don't grow up in a neutral container where we can really find out what our inherent sexuality is. I would love to know what I would have actually been into outside of patriarchy and white supremacy, but I'll never know what that is. And so I can certainly try and find some answers for myself about where things come from. And sometimes that does feel helpful, but also there is sort of this acceptance that acceptance of, um, well, I like, this is the world that I grew up in and it makes sense that I like this. And so I'm just going to kind of go with it. And I, I like to say that to people who feel shame around desiring, for example, a rape fantasy where it's like, of course you want this in the world that we live in. Absolutely. But then I do also think that, you know, um, and Mistress Danielle Blunt, who's a collaborator of mine, who's totally amazing. She talks a lot about how a lot of different fetishes can be linked to different attachment styles, which is really interesting too. So I do think that there's always, um, there's always a reason behind the, 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 why we like the things that we like, but if it's, it's really up to you if you want to do that exploration or not. Right, right. So you brought up shame and we talked a lot about trauma um, and those are yeah. things that make us feel all sorts of shitty ways. However, yeah. <laughs> is there a difference between how the feeling of shame versus the feeling of trauma affects our bodies and our central nervous system? Mm-hmm. Or are they, are they like one's like the appetizer and one's like the meal, but they're both food? Yeah. Like how, how does that work? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so uh, one of my teachers who's an incredible psychotherapist, Lana Epstein, she talks a lot about how trauma and shame show up in the body in the exact same way. 
So that's another reason why someone, especially around sex and sexuality, can show signs of trauma, even if they haven't had sexual trauma because of the shame they've experienced for their sexuality. Um, and so they do they do show up in the body the same way. I would say that they have maybe different um, like responses, for example, like shame doesn't make you like jump out of your skin every time you think that you see your ex-partner. Um, but I do think that when it comes to our nervous system and to our sense of self, so how we feel about ourselves, how we feel about our sexuality, our identities, they, they are actually quite literally the same. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I have talked to lots of people when it comes to kink and I have, you know, not only done it in a like professional, more coaching sense, I've also done like phone domination and all sorts of things. So I've kind of heard it from different angles and I found there's two different types of people. There are the people that like, I have this really embarrassing, shameful, whatever it is, fantasy, and I want to dive in and indulge in it. And then there are mm-hmm. people that are like, I want to have, I have this embarrassing fantasy and I want to get rid of it. I yeah. I hate it. I, I don't want it. So is it yeah. healthy? Is it possible to just say, this is like the one fantasy that's driving me and I want to kick it into the sun? Or should we right. lean into it and learn to love it as a part of ourselves? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I think that this is, a really important component of consensual non-consent. For example, I work with so many sexual trauma survivors who have fantasies around their sexual trauma who are really upset by that and don't want to explore those fantasies. And a lot of that might have to do with shame around desiring the fantasy in the first place. But a lot of it is that it, it the fantasy might just be super triggering or might just be really upsetting for them in a place that they don't want to go. And you really do get to decide what that looks like. So for example, you don't have to heal your sexual trauma through re-experiencing it through sex. Like that is absolutely not the only way whatsoever. And it's totally okay to decide that you don't want to explore this fantasy. I think that what oftentimes can happen, however, is that as people heal, they can become more curious about those fantasies as they aren't so weighty or scary. Um, But I think that thinking about a different example, so, so that isn't like a consensual non-consent fantasy If someone's really interested in something and they, sexually but they have a lot of shame or they like really really don't want to explore it I would be really I would do some self-exploration around why you don't want to explore it like I do find that it does often is rooted in shame but if for example if it's rooted in like your own privilege or your own um or maybe it's rooted in your lineage's trauma and you like don't just don't want to go there like I think that that's incredibly fair too but really exploring what it is about that that you don't want to touch and is that something you can figure out in therapy is that something that you can talk about with people in your community because I do think there's always something there yeah yeah okay um so I have a feeling that the American fuckers, which we call our listeners listening along are having like their little individual mind blown incidents across the country right now. Like, holy shit. <laughs> like, you know, some people are probably like, I knew my kink was therapeutic, but now I re- like you have a, a very good way of being able to kind of laser focus and pick this stuff apart and make it make sense to people. So I have a feeling with those exploded minds across the country, for some of them, their next step is like, okay, cool. You know, maybe I do want to bring up more of my kink and that kind of exploration with my therapist. However, um, as we know, it's really hard to find somebody like you who understands kink, who understands non-normative relationship styles and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So how does somebody go about finding a therapist that can actually help them, you know, deconstruct what's happened in their kink uh, scenes? Yeah, absolutely. This is really, really tough. I mean, it's really hard to find somebody in New York City, which is where I practice, but honestly, like anywhere who can hold um, hold that space. I think that I have a referrals highlight on my Instagram page that I find helpful that just has a little bit more information about how to interview a therapist to see if they'd be a good fit. So 
you know, maybe you can't see somebody who is, who specializes in working with kinky folks. I think that's pretty rare. But what you can do is ask some questions. If you're ever going to meet with a therapist, I cannot emphasize enough doing a phone consultation and whether they ask you for that or you advocate for yourself and ask for that. I think it's so helpful. So a question that you can ask is you've experienced working with people who are involved in the BDSM community. And if a therapist is like, oh yeah, absolutely. Then, you know, there you go. And you can see if it's a good fit or if they're like, I have no idea what that even stands for, what you can offer. If it sounds like whatever, maybe they specialize in something else that you're looking for, like they're a trauma therapist or something. Um, you can ask if they would be open to self-educating on their own time. So what you shouldn't have to do is educate your therapist about your life, whether it's about being kinky or literally about anything on your dime. If there's something that your therapist needs to learn more about, that's up to them to do their own research and education. So what I've had, what I've heard has worked for people in the past is them like sending their therapist, like a podcast, for example, or a book or something that they can do some self-education around. And then you do have to put in a little bit of work, I'm sure, during sessions to be like, oh, actually, like, this is what this means or this is this thing. But for the most part, it really is up to them to do their own work to self-educate and understand. Right, right. Or shameless plug, uh, practitioners can hire people like us that are kind of liaisons between totally. the world and therapy. You know, Ken and I have gone to like UCLA to teach like master's students that are becoming therapists and, and things Amazing. like that. So yes. I, yes, I want to see more and more of that happening, not for selfish reasons, because I got to pay my rent. Um, but because it makes the world a better yeah. place. Yeah, absolutely. Also, because yeah, no, I need to pay my rent. Yes. But yeah. <laughs> also that. No, definitely. Yeah. And like learning from someone who's in the community is so important. And like for therapists. So I have I have a workshop online that is for anybody, but it is definitely one of the people that it's for is for therapists who want to learn more about this stuff. And being able to learn from someone who is both a mental health professional and also like really understands this stuff is really, really important. And I, it's been really nice to see people who've reached out to me who are therapists who know literally nothing about kink and BDSM who took the workshop and were like, now I feel like I can work with these folks. Oh, so, you know, amazing. there is, there's a lot of resources out there um, that are super accessible, like whether they can console you, which I think would be amazing. Or like the, my workshop is like 40 bucks. Like oh, you cool. can educate yourself. It's nice. not the hardest thing in the world. Right. Oh, that's amazing. That is amazing. So um, on the flip side, resources for just regular old people listening um, who are like, hey, I, I want to learn more about this. Are there uh, any good books for um, overcoming your trauma or even integrating your trauma with your kink? Uh, what can you suggest for those folks? Yeah, totally. I can provide some kink resources and then some trauma resources. And there hasn't been a lot written about bridging the two. So folks will just have to really do their own sort of connection making between the two. So I really suggest, um, like we talked about the book Burnout. Um, I really suggest Waking the Tiger, Healing Trauma by Peter Levine. Um, and then another helpful book I would also say is any internal family systems book, which is about, um, parts work, which is the stuff that is very similar to inner child and like, uh, age play and little space. Um, so any, any of those is really helpful. And then again, like I do have the, the workshop on my website, which is designed for folks of all backgrounds to learn more about bridging these two things. And then folks can stay tuned myself and my collaborator, Mistress Blunt, we are working on hopefully a book together. Um, that will be exactly this. So talking about the healing components of healing and overcoming your trauma through BDSM. That's hilarious, because my next question was going to be, so when you're writing that book, so I guess I got my answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is, be it is being written right now. <laughs> awesome. Very cool. That is just yeah. amazing. Can you let us know where can we find you on the internet? Yeah, absolutely. So on Instagram at Somatic Witch. And then my website is com. And I am in the process of building a YouTube of live Instagrams that I've recorded with folks. And one of those is with, um, again, my collaborator, Mistress Blunt, where we explore the healing properties of BDSM. So that is a video that will be online for free very soon. Ah, 
I'm, awesome. I'm like, I'm going to just be floating on geek out air all day. Um, <laughs> this has been a great conversation. Awesome. And I thank yeah, like thank the universe for giving me a podcast or I guess myself for giving myself a podcast and Ken, of course, <laughs> yes, um, yes. To, as an excuse to meet people like you. I really enjoy connecting with you and, you know, peeking into your brain. Um, I hope we can talk more. And thank you so much. You this so has been much. great. Thank you. Thank you both. This has been wonderful. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to American Sex. To keep up with Ken and I, we'll first make sure you watch our TV show, Sex with Sunny Megatron, on Showtime. Then visit SunnyMegatron.com. There you can learn more about us, read our blog, peruse our workshop calendar, or hire us. For what? Well, either for private coaching, or to book us to teach at your event or university, or as sex and relationship writers for your publication. Oh, and don't forget, we're on social media, too. I'm the super social one, so you can find me as Sunny Megatron on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, my YouTube channel, and a bunch of other places. But if you want to get me on Snapchat, you got to look for Sunny underscore Megatron, and you can follow Ken on Twitter at at tag SciChicken. That's P-S-Y-C-H-I-C-K-E-N. Also, please support us by shopping with the affiliates and sponsors from our breaks. And if you contribute to our Patreon, we're going to love you forever. Well, we're going to love you forever anyway, but just go with it. Lastly, if you like this broadcast, tell people about it. Tweet it, Facebook status it, and rate it on iTunes and other platforms. Thanks, friends. We'll see you next week on American Sex.